She's a fierce advocate for the rights of the terminally ill. You are listening to ReachMD XM157, the channel for medical professionals. Welcome to the Clinician's Roundtable. I'm Susan Dolan, your host, and with me is Barbara Coombs-Lee. Miss Lee is an attorney, nurse, a physician's assistant, and the president of Compassion and Choices, an organization dedicated to expanding and protecting the rights of the terminally ill. Ms. Lee, welcome to the Clinician's Roundtable. Thank you. It's wonderful to be with you. Tell us about Compassion and Choices and how it began. It began after an initiative, a Death with Dignity initiative in Washington State failed. And the advocates for that were some of the most active people on behalf of AIDS patients in the state. And at that time, it was the height of the AIDS epidemic. There were a lot of people who were looking forward to a really desperate, difficult, very painful end-of-life experiences. They had witnessed their partners undergo the same. And there were a lot of violent suicides among those people, um, you know, people jumping from bridges and things. And these advocates said, that's a shame. That, that's wrong. It, that shouldn't be seen as the only alternative for peaceful dying. And they decided that they would become sources of information and steadfast, non-judgmental witnesses as people made their path to peaceful dying. So they researched how people could have a peaceful death. They stayed with people as they made these choices and even sat at the bedside. So they were always very transparent and open about the eligibility criteria, about the guidelines and safeguards, and about what these volunteers did. But that is how they began, really in service to people who were searching for a means of peaceful dying. And then over the years, we've branched into various forms of advocacy, uh, legislation, and litigation. And now we're about a $4.5 million organization that is national. Where are you located? We have two home offices, one in Portland, Oregon, and one in Denver, Colorado. And then we have about 60 local groups, affiliated organizations, and chapters And we have volunteers essentially in every state of the union. What led to your interest in quality end-of-life care? Well, as you mentioned in your introduction, I was a clinician for many years. I was a a nurse, a nurse practitioner, a physician assistant. I worked in intensive care. I worked in public health. I worked in just about every setting of medical care. And I saw some what I would regard as as very good, life-affirming deaths, and I saw some very desperate, agonized death, and I determined that I would like to do everything in, in my life to optimize people's opportunities, you know, to have peaceful deaths. Well, then I went to law school, and I did some work with the Oregon legislature, and I saw how laws are made, uh, you know, and there's the old adage, there are two things you don't want to see being made, and those are sausages and laws, and it's really true. It's a difficult process that doesn't always have a good outcome, and and I didn't think that the lawmaking process was working very well for dying people. So I kind of put the two parts of my training together, the clinical part and the legal part, and decided to do see what I could do uh, to improve things. Give us an update on state legislation regarding end-of-life care. I can say that there is a pending bill in the state of California that I think is, is a groundbreaking bill, and that is what we call the terminally ill patients' right-to-know law. And what that would say is that when a terminally ill person begins a conversation with their doctor about end-of-life options, you know, says, hey, doc, you know, what's in store for me? I know that 
my time is limited, my illness is terminal, are there some choices that, that we need to make? What are those choices? That in response to that, physicians need to deliver a candid and a comprehensive discussion about end-of-life choices. Some physicians, and it's a, it's a little bit of a, a common reaction, I guess, if you're not comfortable talking about these things, it's easy to say, well, you know, let's, let's cross that bridge when we come to it, or, or don't worry about that, leave that to me. This bill empowers patients to say, well, I really want to have this conversation, and if you and I can't have this conversation, could you tell me where I could have this conversation? And a physician then must refer the patient to some agency in the community, and there are many, many who do this kind of end-of-life case management, who will talk with the patient about what choices lie ahead. Ms. Lee, how do you respond to those who say lawmakers shouldn't meddle in physician-patient relationships? I think that lawmakers should not meddle in physician-patient relationships insofar as those relationships are intimate and personal and idiosyncratic you know, to the situation. But I think it's right and proper for lawmakers to pre-create broad categories and benchmarks and say, these are the standards of good care. This is what patients do deserve. And sometimes lawmakers just have to intervene and provide those benchmarks when the medical profession itself is not. And, and a good example is informed consent. You know, that's a principle and a set of laws that I, I think there's unanimity that, that those are good principles, that, that when patients are making medical decisions, they need to consent, and their consent needs to be informed. Now, that doctrine of informed consent, you know, didn't come from the medical profession. It came from first from the courts and then codified by legislatures. Now, that doesn't mean that legislatures should get into the intricacies of what all the options are that are discussed, you know, when that informed consent takes place, et cetera. But at least the lawmakers say this is what the standard is for patient information, patient consent, when a medical procedure is contemplated. If you're just joining us, you're listening to the Clinician's Roundtable on ReachMD XM157, the channel for medical professionals. I'm Susan Dolan, your host, and with me is the president of Compassion and Choices, Barbara Coombs-Lee, discussing expanding and protecting the rights of the terminally ill. Ms. Lee, what do you believe are the biggest misconceptions doctors have about end-of-life care? Well, of course, there's an enormous amount of variety. And I would preface this by saying that the medical community physicians have made enormous strides in the last 15 to 18 years in discovering the problems in end-of-life care and in addressing them. Physicians know more about hospice. They refer patients to hospice more now than they used to. They understand more about pain and symptom management. They are more generous with opioid analgesics and more willing to let the patient direct their pain care than they ever had before. I think that one thing that many physicians do not realize still, though, is how much patients appreciate frankness about their terminal illness and their prognosis and being included in the decision-making process. Many people enter the last phase of their life, the last few weeks or months of their lives, fully intending to 
exercise the same kind of responsibilities and personhood in that last phase that they have in their lives. That's the essence of the quality of their lives. And so they don't want to turn over all their choices and turn over all their control to their caregivers. They want to be co-decision makers. That doesn't cast any aspersions on their relationship, their respect for the doctor's learning and the doctor's advice, but it does say something about it, what it means for them to be a person and a participant in their own dying. I think that that's a big area where palliative care physicians, really all physicians who deal with dying patients and hospices and palliative care programs, I think that's an area that could evolve substantially to great improvement in the next few years. You mentioned patient-directed pain medication. Tell us more about the efforts of compassion and choices in that regard. Many years ago, we were instrumental in passing a pain patient's bill of rights in the state of California, and that's become a model act. And that essentially says that a patient in pain has a right to any and all modalities to treat their pain, any and all current medical modalities to treat their pain. And that essentially means that the proper dose of pain medication is that dose that relieves the patient's pain. And when a patient is dying, they are likely to experience rapidly escalating need for pain medication. A fear that the patient may be turning into an addict is not a valid fear. A fear that the pain medication itself may cause the shortening of the patient's life when the patient is nearing the end of life, that is not an appropriate reason to cut back on pain medication. Essentially, what the patient needs in order to alleviate the agonies of dying, that's the appropriate dose of medication. So that's what that bill did. It really kind of of established that it's the patient's right to be relieved of pain and any and all modalities to do that. Those are the proper modalities. Another bill that Compassion and Choices was behind and has become a model bill is one that understands that physicians who might have been trained at a time when pain and palliative care were not prevalent, were not part of their training, they may need some additional medical education in order to maintain currency and in order to have the skills and the knowledge to deliver good end-of-life care to their patients. And so it's a condition of licensure and renewal of licensure in the state of California that uh, physicians be current and have attended some coursework in pain and palliative care. They've met some resistance, but in the end, the California Medical Association supported that bill, and the feedback that we've gotten has been very, very good from physicians who essentially didn't know how far pain and palliative care had advanced and didn't know about the techniques that they could be using to relieve their patient's suffering. How do you respond to patients, families, healthcare professionals that do say the morphine is killing the patient? You know, new evidence is that it's extremely unusual for even very, very high doses of morphine and other other opiates to actually impact on the time of death. The truth is that the patient's tolerance of these medications rises so quickly that really the opiates are, are only relieving the suffering and not causing death. But even in cases where the level of pain medication is raised and the patient's death follows soon after, I think it is 
absolutely appropriate to say that it is the underlying the disease that caused the death of the patient. The patient is dying of cancer, and the suffering and pain associated with that called for the best that medical has to offer. And the best that medical care and medical science has to offer is the relief of suffering when death is imminent. Ms. Lee, thank you so much for joining us to discuss compassion and choices. Thanks, Susan. I'm Susan Dolan. You've been listening to the Clinician's Roundtable on ReachMD XM157, the channel for medical professionals. Please visit our website at ReachMD.com, which features our entire library of on-demand podcasts, or call us toll-free with your comments and suggestions at 888-MD-XM157. Thank you for listening. Hi, this is Dr. Jeffrey Kay with Oregon Health and Science University and the Portland VA Medical Center in Portland, Oregon. Every chance I get, I listen to the channel for medical professionals. ReachMD, XM 157.